the world changes around you, right? And you change as a business as well, exactly like Grab did when Grab first started. That principle can be attributed to other segments as well. I'm going to provide a broad base of services to this to this niche segment, and once I've you know, whatever the goals are, profitability, sustainability, market saturation, then I look at, okay, what have I learned from that experience? Uh, do I double down on that? Do I rebadge it and go after another segment? Do I go international to the same segment, but in different regions? I think there's always different ways that you can iterate off it. Hello, and welcome to The Finterview, a show about the stories of innovators, entrepreneurs, and builders shaping the future of our financial world through technology. We're going to keep finding inspiring stories to share with you, so make sure you've subscribed to the show to never miss an episode. Hi everyone, your host Amar Kotak from Integrated Finance. I'm joined today by a very special and very charming guest, uh, Richard Stockley, Director of Partnerships at Currency Cloud. Welcome, Rich. Great to have you on the show today. Great to great to be here. Thank you for the for the lovely introduction. You are a real globe trotter traveler. From what I've seen, you've lived in what Argentina, Dubai, Vietnam, Hong Kong. Like, talk me through yeah. that. How how have you ended up working all over the world? Yeah, yeah, I've been pretty lucky. Um, uh, it's a checkered past, of course. Um, I think. Um, it all started, I guess, I grew up in expat. So I grew up in, in Hong Kong um, with, with my folks out there. And I think um, maybe when you're a sort of a third culture kid, uh, that kind of changes your DNA a little bit, perhaps. And, uh, and staying in one place becomes increasingly difficult. So, uh, so yeah, 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 yeah. I've traveled, traveled a bunch. Um, yeah, five years. I cut my teeth in the, in the Middle East uh, in my early 20s. Um, five years there, five years in uh, Vietnam, which was uh, which was fun, and a few little hops around New York and, and other other spots as well. So I'd be pretty lucky. It's it's good, you know. It keeps life interesting. Very. And how did you find like banking and stuff as an expat, right? Because that that seems to be a challenge. Is it everywhere you went, you had to go and open up new accounts? Like, what was the process for you then? Yeah, you know, I've never really reflected on that, but yeah, absolutely. It was always an absolute hassle. Um, uh, yeah, Dubai was a was a reasonable hassle. There were still checks and things that you need, you needed to submit, like post dated checks. I don't think to the bank, but you had to. Um, uh, there were all checks and balances in terms of paperwork you had to do. I remember in um, in Vietnam, um, it was a hassle too. Um, there was a limit on how much money you could take out of the ATMs. So you had to spend sort of 15 minutes at, a, as a, at an ATM doing multiple uh, multiple transactions in order to get enough cash out to pay your rent. Because of course you couldn't do a, uh, you couldn't do a bank to bank transfer um, in Vietnam in those days. You can obviously can now, but um, um, back then it wasn't, it wasn't so easy. So, uh, so yeah, actually on reflection, yes. And then even in, um, um, you know, the great US of A, uh, this huge economy where you would have expected um, um, the fintech scene and the progress around financial services to be at its absolute forefront. I was really surprised when I was over there. I was over there in sort of 2014-ish. And um, um, uh, and uh, the hassle it was doing, doing, uh, doing just basic 
payments. There was no contactless. Uh, when you pay by credit card, you still sign the the docket at, uh, at you know to sign the bottom of the receipt. Um, when you're paying your rent, you needed to do it by check. Um, it was it was a surprise that it was quite different than what we see in the UK. And I think then you you know when you see those differences in comparative, you know when you're in the fishbowl, you don't you don't see how different places work. But when you see what's happened in the UK, you really got to take your hat off to um, uh, to the innovation that's happened in the UK and and, and what we benefit from every day because it's not experienced equally around the world. I know. I mean, from a checkbook standpoint, I think I only had a checkbook when I opened my first account of like 16 years old or something like that. And yeah. I haven't had one since. I don't even think like they bothered sending me them anymore because we just don't use it here. And I think we they've were, got ri- and, the, and I think they've recently got rid of them, haven't they? Haven't they recently? I, th- I, I think, think they've so. canned them. I don't, I don't know if that was regulated or, or what it was, but I don't think they, they exist Um for good reason, I think the yeah. fraud and stuff that, <laughs> that would go on there, it was, it's not worth the hassle. But even with USA now, I mean, um, I went to Money 2020 um, in October. And, oh, yeah. And so they have now the element of contactless, but it's contactless where you sometimes have to sign after you do contactless. <laughs> and it, it yeah, just seems it. so counterintuitive to me, like you're losing the benefit of contactless by having to sign. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and no, that's but, the US, right? But they're getting there. You know, uh, in New York, uh, you can do contactless on the on the subway now, which is which again makes just life so much easier. Just tapping and tapping out, and stuff. Again, it's all that stuff you take for granted over here. And uh, and then when it when it when it turns up in the states, it's like ah, oh, fantastic. We're you know progress. No, definitely. Um, and then I guess. We've talked like London is so advanced, right? In terms of fintech, as, we, as we're talking about, but like, are there elements of finance and banking you've seen in the US or Vietnam or Hong Kong that you're like, oh, actually, that would be really cool if we brought that here to London? Like, that's a, a problem we have, but no one's really solved here. I think the um, um, the one that looms large in in my experience in in Asia is around the super apps. And I know I, I I almost hate bringing it up, right? Because it's one of these phrases that just gets used and over and over and over again. Um, you know, the advent of super apps. But in Asia, their their ubiquity is unbelievable. I don't know if we'll ever get to that stage over here. Although we can, I think we can learn a lot from 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 what's happened over there. You know, even recently, I was in I was in Indonesia a few months ago. Um, I was just on there on holiday with uh, with my family, and and everything we did was through the Grab app. Whether we wanted to get a taxi, get groceries delivered, order some food in, um, there were a whole bunch of financial services elements in there embedded in that. At the moment, you know, two weeks over there, we didn't need to dive into any of the lending or anything else that happened there. But but it was just this. Um, aggregation of services through through a single user interface was just was was just insane um so really and and also where it came from you know grab started as a a, you know ride hailing app um, and then just that horizontal um, peripheration of services uh is quite extraordinary you know there's always the talk of super apps over here and then oh yeah financial services will be the nexus of it but i'm not i'm not sure if it'll come from that side you know it certainly didn't in asia 
Yeah, because it could come through like other players embedding financial products into their apps Correct. rather than a financial product embedding travel services, which it, it, it's less of a connection there, but you can see it the other way around, maybe a bit easier. Yeah, absolutely. And what's the valuable part of, uh, uh, you know, a significant value of any uh, commercial proposition is your existing customer base. And so, you know, these existing, whether they're retailers or, you know, ride hailing apps or e-commerce, they already have these connection points. And then how can they actually use those active customers to then sell in new services and, and add that value on? I think that's you know, it's it's an interesting academic argument to say whether that's the easiest route to um, to, uh, to 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 you know preparing a or providing a a, a multi omni omni offering um, versus coming from financial services. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, definitely. I also find that I mean that argument so interesting because you know when when you're a young startup looking to launch a product every vc and every advisor will tell you focus on a really really small niche like nail that niche get traction and then expand that slowly 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 but then if you're trying to be a super app and all things to all people like it's hard to hyper personalize your product to one niche right yeah but would you i guess the question is where do you start because you can't logically you can't start everywhere um, and none of these, none of the super apps um, started doing everything at the at, at the outset. They all started with one focused area. And I think that's quite interesting because you do see that it's an interesting discussion actually. That that sort of bundled versus unbundled, it kind of extends into that, doesn't it? Um, and you're right. Uh, the fintechs, especially in the UK, are very niche. You know, I, I would consider Currency Cloud one of those. We aim to be extremely narrow and extremely deep in cross-border and fx payments you know that's that's our reason for being and could we uh issue cards could we um do lending could we do all this stuff yeah absolutely we could but that's not in our strategy our strategy is is just to stay is just to be the best in that in that narrow segment knowing that there will be other players out there that will be narrow and deep in other segments and it's more easy to or it's easier to collaborate with them to provide whole whole offerings rather than do it yourself i'm not sure i'm not sure if you uh, if, if, what you sort of see in the market whether you see a change there um uh, to people starting off wanting to be all things to all people well, I guess if you look from a startup perspective, we now when we speak to prospects and young founders, they're looking to solve niche problems for certain industries or certain demographics. Mm. Like here, I'm going to be a bank for Chinese students coming over to study in the UK. I'm going to be a bank for contractors. I'm going to be a bank for musicians. Mm -hmm. uh, and everyone's now really going down that niche. But then you see some of the incumbent players who have tried to do the accounts and the FX and the cards, but even like people who have tens or hundreds of millions in funding are struggling to create solid products that work in all the verticals they're trying to do, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and a lot of startups we're seeing are rather than going for that bundled solution, they rather pick best in class in each vertical, right? Uh, and because they yep. know they, they want the, to have a solid plan for the future and working best in class in my opinion, is always the way to go. It's sometimes more expensive, especially up front, and that's hard for young startups. But 
like it's always the way I think to long term growth. I, I think that you know historically it's always been um, the trade off has always been you go generic and broad, so you go to one shop stop and you get a whole bunch of bundle offerings, um, but you don't have a lot of flexibility. And then I'm guessing, you know, to your point, if you're uh, developing a, a banking platform specifically for a segment, they're going to have specific needs, which are going to require um, a bespoke element of some of those features. So that means it pushes you to, okay, well, now I need to uh, contract independently with all the best in class. But historically, there's always been a perception that there's been a huge complexity tax to that, right? And I guess that, you know, that is what, our good friends at Integrated Finance, you know, that's what you're trying to solve, isn't it? Great guys it's like, it's <laughs> fantastic, wonderful, wonderful boys, is um, is creating that glue so the trade-off is not so stark, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's that benefit of you're unbundled in the sense that you get all the partners you want in best-in-class verticals, but it's bundled in the fact that from an integration perspective, it's, it's only mm. one, right? And, and I think that's the, I think that's the, probably the hybrid model the industry is moving towards. I, you know, it's not dissimilar to what we do, right? In terms of it's abstracting the complexity under the covers. And that's exactly what we do, even though we're narrow and deep, where our whole aim is to, is to have under the covers, under our tech platform, a whole suite of uh, banking relationships that are complex in nature in terms of the management and the process and the reconciliation of all this FX and cross-border, but abstracting that into a single layer that you don't need to worry about. And I guess you're that next level higher than that, abstracting the abstractors. Um, exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I guess some people don't necessarily think about it, but Currency Cloud are probably one of the, the OG fintechs in the space, you know, before the likes of, you know, Revolut, Monzo and Starling came in you guys were the og fintech abstracting the technical complications that people like barclays and other tier ones kind of offered to launch new products right yeah absolutely yeah no totally and that and that and and it and if you look at our clients you know we serve the 600 clients and a, and a huge proportion of them are fintechs who want to get stuff to market quickly want to have um, a best-in-class solution and the flexibility to do novel things with their cross-border and, and FX, but don't have the scale, the weight, the finances to um, to coordinate directly with with the tier one banks. So uh, us aggregating that capability, presenting it in a way that's API first and you know modular and all that sort of good architectural stuff. I'm not a technical guy, so I kind of brush over that stuff, but I know it's important. Um, um, means means that our customers can get can get live quicker right uh, can get a product out to market and, and and figure it out but we're only you know we are only just one uh, piece of the pie as it were so um you know we're humble in our uh in our uh in our acknowledgement that you know cross-border fx come to us and we we're your people uh, and we're happy to make uh, the right introductions to uh, to our friends in the industry to to to, to help pull together the other parts you need. But um, but our expertise is 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 narrow and deep. Yeah, and I guess what that proves is you can grow and be a super app like Grab and be incredibly successful, or you can find your niche, solve it really well, and still grow a huge business and exit and whatever it is you want to do. You don't 
there's not one path that suits all, right? You no, absolutely not. Path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. You see a ton of different stories of success in lots of different ways, right? So, um, yeah, and that's that's what makes it interesting. And no one knows who's going to be right, you know. <laughs> that's the beauty of it, right? No one yeah. can predict the future. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's fun. Well, talking about the future, if we look back to the past a little bit, I saw you, um, you. Well, I mean, you you work um, at Currency Cloud now, a good corp, big corporate, but you were previously a CEO of a company. Um, <laughs> do you want to yeah. talk us through what that was like, kind of running your own company, and, and what what I mean, what did you find the hardest bit? Because when you speak to other founders, you know, they say the hardest bit is managing people. It's always the hardest challenge. What did you find running your own company or coming in and running a company was so hard? Yeah, it's it's one of those funny ones, right? It's um, it ah, it, it, it it's it's one of these stories where if I if I had known then what I know now, I wouldn't have touched it with a ten foot barge pole. Um, however, I did. Yeah, <laughs> however, I did, and I, I and I however the experience was um, wonderful for 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 many reasons um the most in uh, the most useful was understanding my own self and what i'm good at and can thrive in and what i find really challenging and 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 really difficult and i think um so what it was it was it was you know just for for, for a brief overview um uh, it was in Vietnam. Um, the, the reason the reason I decided to do a bit of a pivot was I'd been an engineer for sort of eight years of my career, and and that was that was that was fine. You know, I was I was doing okay, but uh, I was I started to get really really interested in in non linear business models because as an engineer, you're essentially a consultant, so you sell your time. So the amount of money you're ever going to make is directly proportional to how many hours there are in a day. That's fixed. Okay, cool. So you, you kind of you have a you have a pretty pretty well-worn path there and I was like oh what about these business models you know where you put one unit in and then three pop out and then you put another unit in and then six pop out and you put another unit in and then 12 pop out whatever these non-linear um uh business models uh and so I decided to take a bit of a plunge um and get out of engineering burn my ships and uh and I took a really uh, I did a lot of research around in terms of the type of industries that I wanted to get into. And then I ended up in a really weird place. Um, and it's, it's quite comical to, to think of it now, but I ran a, um, uh, I ran a digital publishing business that specialized. Wow, yeah. That specialized in, um, uh, well, our target segment were Vietnamese women between the ages of oh, urban women between the ages of 25 and 35. So it was a bit of a weird place for a sort of, a uh, 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 a uh, expatriate male ex-engineer to be in. But I was really interested in the model. I'll tell you why I was interested in it. Because Vietnam previous, um, it was just at the fall, just, just starting its real um, acceleration into um, social media and digital communications and things like that. So previously, the big um, way that people would socialize online would be through forums. And um, and this company that I ended up buying had uh, the second largest kind of women's forum uh, on it, and um, and I saw what was happening in sort of Facebook and, and other social media platforms, and I was like, you know what, we could 
we could pivot from this kind of old, stale Joomla one forum basis into um, Facebook communities and other communities where we could curate, um, we could create conversations online and bring brands in and be a and 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 be a marketing platform where brands can engage with real people. And so I was like, if I have real conversations going on, then I can help monetize those through marketing. Um, so that was a theory, and we did, and a lot of it worked out really, really well. Um, in terms of we did, you know, we had all sorts of communities that we built out of that, and uh, and a raft of brands uh, engaged in it, you know, Unilever and Benefit, all this, all these kind of makeup brands and things that were very new to me. Um, and we produce some good content. Um, the reflections that I have on that period is that um, it's quite a lonely place um, being um, being an entrepreneur and trying to grow your own business. Um, and Absolutely. and and I probably that being on the hook for all the major decisions and not having a and and not surrounding. I, this is probably one of my failings. Not surrounding myself with people that I could get good advice from made it quite you know made it hard hard work. Um, in the end, um, the exit was good. We we uh, we were in a position where we either needed to um, raise uh, a ton more cash and and super scale the business, or or fold it into something where it had a where it had a better home, and we ended up being acquired by Procter and Gamble. So uh, so an interesting an interesting exit, not not altogether bad, um, uh, but it was uh, it was an interesting experience from start to finish. That's for sure. So. I also saw you did some work for some non-governmental organizations, particularly like disaster relief stuff. And I've always had the thought that fintechs can play such a role helping people who um, are suffering as part of like earthquakes and natural Mm -hmm. disasters or whatever disaster it may be. Do you think fintechs and stuff could help? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, uh, my my work in that humanitarian space was um, was as an engineer, so uh, so I predominantly worked on sort of um, uh, water and sanitation and um, and sort of managing refugee camps when there'd been either natural disasters or or big uh, migration um, events due to conflict, um, um, but it, in those situations, sort of the it, it, the highly complex situations because they're you know it's people situations are fluid um it's uh, emotionally charged in terms of you know it, the reason you're there is because people aren't aren't doing too well and they they need some they need some assistance in terms of um you know technology broadly and specifically fintech helping out there then yeah a- absolutely but it's i i think the challenge the challenge would be, and there's 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 bound to be listeners out there that um, are deep into the space and thinking about this problem much more deeply than than I have. Um, but it's I think the trick would be the interface between what the technology can do and then how it is deployed and consumed on the ground. Um, um, there's a lot of initiatives. Um, Certainly when I was, um, you know, I'm reflecting on some time in Sri Lanka, and again, this is going back sort of, you know, almost 20 years now, um, uh, but um, direct payments to, uh, to displaced persons. So rather than, um, rather than giving them uh, non-food items and, uh, and an actual, you know, 
uh, items that they that that we perceive they need, um, directly giving these uh, displaced persons cash so they can actually fulfill their needs with 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 the things that they need depending on their circumstances. I can certainly see that distribution of um, uh, those distribution elements being more streamlined if some of the um, um, some of the principles around fintech were deployed in those situations. Actually, there's you know there's 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 folk out there that I know that are, that are thinking about this. I've got good um, good friends that are based out in Singapore and Thailand. Um, uh, just uh, they, they have a, a startup called Bixie, um, predominantly around uh, financial literacy uh, for women. Um, but as a uh, as a result of um, um, uh, some of the crises around the world, they're looking at those distributions and how they can actually make direct distributions through their through their platform. So there are folk out there thinking about this. So so yeah, I think there's a there's a there's definitely a route to play. Um, um, yeah, it's a it's a a very worthwhile endeavor for sure. Yeah, no, definitely, and I think. I don't know if we've told you this, but like at IF, we have this thing where if the commercial team have an idea and we're like, oh, click fingers, it's easy. Surely, why has no one done this? Engineering team, why can't you build this in two weeks? And and I, I'm probably one of the most guilty parties of doing that at the company. <laughs> but in my head, like to solve this problem, could it or is it as easy as, you know, offering displaced people like a prepaid card that is locked to shopping at certain like merchant category codes at scheme. So they can only go and use our grocery stores or clothes stores or, or whatever it is within that, that grocery camp or the refugee camp to kind of make sure that they're using the money in the ways that we want it to. Cause with, with cash, you never know what's going to happen with it. Yeah. Right. Giving Absolutely. goods, you're not giving the right goods or the right amount of goods. If they have kids, they need certain items. Is it is it that easy, or I mean, what are the challenges? I mean, this is just me yeah, sitting yeah, in my room right. in London. Yeah, no, no. Academically, it is. It is. Uh, you know, it is. It is likely to be that easy from a from a from a technology perspective. Um, I think the thing to the thing to think about is, and I'm no expert in this, is uh, is the human element in terms of. Um, of of how you're interacting with these people, what their actual needs are, um, whether you are creating situations that create imbalances in the economy, the local economy itself. So I'm always kind of conscious of saying, you know, that if the technology, if you come up with a technology idea and, you know, wouldn't it work, there's often a couple of layers of complexity and they're usually not around technology, they're around culture and society and ethics and morals that um, that need to be considered, especially in, in, in situations where you're working with vulnerable people, uh, in, in situations where they would prefer not to be, uh, but you're there to help. It's, it, is, it is complex and, and fraught with danger, and you, know, you want to make sure you're doing the right thing uh, every step of the way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've already just uh, shut down the idea of how easy it is, but like, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping in, you know, your, your friends out there in, in Singapore and, and all others around the world will have to solve this problem. Like, if the technology is there to help, it's then just how can you integrate that technology into everyday life for, for these uh, vulnerable people? And uh, I'm sure there are people out there solving this a lot brighter than myself. Uh, for sure. Oh, I think, uh, but you know, it's you got to start somewhere, right? And I think it's not a, it's not about, um, it's not about having good or bad ideas. It's having practical ideas. 
um, that blend that sort of, and I think, you know, going back to, you know, even extrapolating beyond sort of um, humanitarian situations, that's the, that's the nexus of, uh, of entrepreneurship, right? It's, it's blending what you can do with, with what the market wants and, and be able to synthesize that and, and deliver it in a way that, that people can consume it. I, um, uh, you know, those principles are, uh, are the same the world over. Yeah. And I think what's really important is that as a, as an industry, um, if we can continue innovating the, the reach of benefit that we can provide to the world kind of has no, has no bounds. Right. I mean, there are so many areas which we can touch life. If, if as an industry, we just back the founders and innovators of our generation. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It's a generation of ideas exposing them to the light seeing which ones grow that's uh yeah that's such an important part of the of the economy and ideas and innovation yeah and i guess that that brings us quite nicely onto uh the fintech foundation program talk through why you think the foundation is is so important and why yourselves as currency cloud wanting to be partners of it we love working with integrated finance. Um, we have a we have a strong affinity with you guys. There's a strong sort of common culture there in terms of wanting to uh, um, wanting to uh, not just um, supply the fintech uh, ecosystem as a supplier or a vendor, but actually um, help um, share knowledge and bring people together and do the right things. And I think the, one of the reasons why we're excited about it is because we, you know, we're, we're, our roots are in the fintech space as well. Um, you know, we still retain a very strong culture that is, uh, that is a scrappy startup. Um, so, you know, that history is not, is, is, you know, it's still with us and it, and it's, uh, and it's not that far away. Um, I think secondly, uh, a, a huge, part of our uh, segments that we um, that we service um, talk to us uh, continually they say look I love you guys for for your cross-border stuff that's great but tell me about um, uh, I want to do a card tell me about tell me what, what I need to do if I need to issue a card uh, who do I need to talk to um, and of course we're happy to you know we're happy to introduce them to the people that we know in the ecosystem that we like working with and that we trust um, but what I like about this initiative with integrated finance is it's kind of building structure and, uh, and, and purpose behind bringing the ecosystem together in a way that makes sense. Um, so I like it because, um, you know, it's, 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 um, we identify it, we, we identify with it. We, um, uh, we think we can bring some, some good, um, some good goods to it. We like that it's not just centered on sort of that commercial element. It's about bringing the ecosystem together. And then, and then inevitably it's about taking these companies and getting them live quicker and get them out to the market as quickly as possible and exposing them to that sunlight and, um, and, and testing them in the market. And, uh, and if we can contribute to that, then we're happy to do so. Absolutely. I mean, I remember when I was a founder um, a few years back now, but you know, one of the things when I when I joined the industry was I was so eager to learn, as all founders are, right? I was coming from a, a non-fintech space, but I had tried my hand at founding another company in another vertical, then came to mm -hmm. fintech, kind of a little bit by happen chance. Um, and what I was so lucky to surround myself with is people who had been in the space for a long time who are willing 
to share that knowledge, right? And I think it's yeah. on all of us. We have a responsibility to give back to the next wave of founders coming through. Uh, and for me, that's one of the key elements. It's getting super smart people in a room, teaching the next wave of really probably smarter people than ourselves, the tools that they will need to build the fintech, but then manage it kind of moving forward and kind of the main pitfalls that they may come across over the next few years. It's, it's a real common trait in sort of in, in industries where technology is a, is, a, is a foundational axiom, right? And I wonder if it is around that sort of, you know, almost like that, I, I, I speak from an armchair way back because I'm not a technical guy, but like from, from this sort of development ethos of, of, of wanting to share and wanting to say, hey, look, I figured out how to do this with this, these lines of code. Do you want to check it out? And then people building on it, the you know, advent of you know, the last 20, 20 years of open source and whole communities around that. I wonder if it's that, that sort of culture, that sort of um, in a really positive way, bleeding into, uh, into the commercial realm around, around broader things than just coding and technology, but around the business cases around that are based on technology. I, you know, I think if that is a trend, I think it's something, you know, we, we, um, we identify with certainly in currency cloud and I know you guys and, uh, and IF as well. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a positive move. Yeah. I guess, um, as we both work in partnerships, that element of collaboration is kind of built into the, the metric of who we are as people to an extent. Right? We are. Yeah. We may, we may carry a few biases, uh, in that regard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely we love nothing better than bringing the ecosystem together that's uh that's, absolutely that's, that's what we're here for <laughs> yeah i wonder what you think i mean i don't know how much from a partnerships role at currency cloud how much access you have to founders and, and prospects of yours looking to launch products but i mean how do you see challenges kind of coming for the industry in the next 12 months is there still room for more in, innovation what what specifically from an innovation point gets you at, you at currency cloud excited i think i think it's especially in these times where innovation is important right um you know the world changing on us especially especially for young fledgling companies wanting to you know get a product live wanting to scale it um the days of um i wouldn't say easy money but um of of money with less strings attached has has changed markedly, right? Compared to what it was twelve months ago, um, and I think it's those those the the strings attached to that money, and that money being the lifeblood of scaling an idea and being able to bring in the hire the right people, getting the right engineering and building the right partnerships, marketing it the right way. You know, you need that. And that dynamic has changed, but I think in response to that, that's when the innovation really happens, because there's a there's pressure, right? It's uh, it's not just as easy to say oh, I'm going to be the next Revolut and that be that be good enough. You've got to really interrogate how am I going to differentiate the market? How am I going to do something that's 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 original, that has demand, that can be satisfied for a, for a commercial gain and, and get us to profitability quickly. So I, I, whilst I think it's tougher out there for founders, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing for the industry because I think we'll, the novelty will will come out of it. We'll we'll get um, we'll get some really interesting um, interesting innovation and and probably in directions that we've uh, that we don't expect. 
you know, it's like that, you know, you got the iPhone and stuff every, every time a new one comes out, it's got a better camera and a better screen. And it's those incremental sort of just, you're just increasing it. I wonder with this, with the pressure that we're going to see in the next um, um, uh, months and years, whether that creates the right conditions for more architectural innovation, where people are looking at things in fundamentally new ways. I, I think I 100% agree with everything you said. I mean, for us, the big motivating factor on setting up the FinTech Foundation was, like you said, the, the element of easy money is going away quickly. For, uh, VCs and stuff are looking at, you know, traction and having a proof of concept to validate the idea that, you know, this is a viable business. And I think it's so important that we give founders the opportunity to kind of get to that stage to then raise investment. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's still space for a new B2C challenger bank, Neobank? There's been a lot in the news recently that, you know, two, three, four, five are closing because they're struggling to monetize their customer base. Is there is there still ways to make that profitable and work? That's a great question. Um, I... I don't know, but I wonder, um, and I'd be interested to get your perspective on this as well, of whether it's not so much about this, it's less about the services and more about the segments. And and to your point, you brought up earlier in uh, in this session around offering offering financial services to, to niche communities and populations. And that being what you anchor your um, um, your business on, I wonder whether that still has a has a has a role to play in terms of really understanding the customer. So rather than a, a Revolut or a Monzo who are more broad based in their offerings and their uh, who they're trying to attract, going super niche, you know. Um, in terms of in terms of communities, I, I expect there's probably a lot more runway there than than broad based broad based uh, offerings. Um, but hey, I think uh, time will tell. But then, if if you go super niche, is that then with the idea of having to expand your demographic over time? Because the niche you go, the smaller your kind of serviceable customer base is, right? So. How much then value can you extract from just a small number of people is going to be the question people have. Correct. But the world changes around you, right? Um, and, and, and you change as a business as well. Exactly like Grab did when Grab first started. Were they like, you know what, I, 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 I want to service, I want to do groceries. Um, you know, I, I don't actually know, but I imagine it probably wasn't on their on their initial roadmap. They wanted to be the best ride hailing app uh, and expand from there. And I imagine it's the, it can be that principle can be attributed to um, to other to other segments as well. I'm going to provide a broad brace of services to this to this niche segment, and once I've maintain you know whatever the goals are profitability sustainability market saturation then i look at okay what have i learned from that experience uh do i double down on that do i rebadge it and go after another segment do i go international to the same segment but in different regions i think there's always different ways that you can iterate off it um and um, um, so, so, so whilst I think you're right, if you've got a limited population, that's you're gonna you may end up saturating that quite 
quickly, you're going to be in a different place when you get to that point and you'll have different options as well. Yeah, I think the way I also think about it is we we talked off air beforehand about soft skills, right? And when you were at IBM and when I worked at PwC, super corporate, but we learned a lot of soft skills, right? Uh, and which is, I think, set us up in the, the way we can operate today in our companies. But I think that some of the other benefits indirectly of focusing on a niche is that you learn how to react to the demands of your niche. Like, what do they want mm. next? How do I pivot? How do I remain agile? How do I continue servicing the demands of this niche as their demands change, right? And how you structure your company to facilitate that success moving forward. And I think once you can get that learning from a niche, it's much easier to extrapolate that moving forward. And at the risk of getting too academic, you know, the, the whole... Um the North star of business is to understand your customer in the most, in the, in the most intimate way possible. Right. It's really un to be able to predict their, their needs before they even know it and be able to service them and just delight them. And, and I imagine it's easier to satisfy that when your when your niche is well-defined and, and identifiable. So, you know, I guess I get, and then I guess it's, it's mapping that, um, uh, which is a, an obvious benefit, right, um, to your aspirations as a firm and what you need to be successful and what that means. Does it does it mean running a running a, a you know really successful niche operation that is you know this big, or does it mean you know global domination of of X, Y, and Z? I think it's it's those aspirations that need to come into play as well. I think maybe there's 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 an awful lot of people that want to uh, dominate the world. And uh, maybe if we were a bit more humble about sort of just being able to delight a, a small segment of customers and know them really well and, and be indispensable to them, um, that might actually be a, a pretty good outcome as well. Do you think that element of world domination kind of comes from the fact that when you're looking to raise investments, the main question the VCs will ask is, is this a billion dollar idea? Will this be a unicorn of a company or could an idea that's worth a hundred million or 300 million be valuable enough to start and service enough people right do you think that's where some of it comes from yeah potentially i i i wonder and i don't know this but i i wonder to your point of whether we uh we discount um we discount the 300 million companies uh because we're looking for the next Uber or the next Grab or the next Facebook or the you know the next uh, WhatsApp, you know we we're looking for these for these global brands. When when actually if if uh, if if we were a bit more um, circumspect about the chances of success and the statistics associated with that, we would do better um, to to manage expectations and, and work within a smaller sphere, albeit with you know commercial outcomes that everyone needs to enjoy, right? We we need to we need to obviously um, monetize the efforts and inputs that go in and and make margin on them, but uh, um, but maybe world domination need not be the, the the absolute outcome. The benchmark that we look for. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny nice. that you just that you touched upon monetization there, right? Because obviously as B2B companies in IF and Currency Cloud, we looked at monetizing with our customers, the neobanks, but if they're, if they're B2C fintechs, neobanks, they, I guess it's hard to monetize at the moment when you look at two of the names you mentioned earlier, you know, Revolut and Monzo have 
historically given away all their services mm. for free to the and kind of funded that through the raising of venture capital and other means and i guess is it possible to monetize a b2z proposition here in the uk and in europe when customers are maybe have now an expectation that banking is free yeah well that's a that's a fantastic question um yeah <laughs> where do you even where do you even start yeah because the expectation you're right the expectation has been set that certain services are uh if not free then very close to very close to cost and once you benchmark that it's very hard for somebody else to come in and say actually no i'm going to rebenchmark that at another level unless they reframe it completely in uh you know in terms of either the brand associated with it or the exclusivity associated with it or other sort of you know um uh elements that can change that value equation in in the head of a in the head of a prospective customer you know you know you go out and buy a Chanel handbag you know the handbag doesn't cost you know it costs a fraction of what the retail value is but you're but you're buying the brand and the exclusivity and all that sort of stuff so maybe there's maybe there are ways to monetize a a, a brand association associated with a financial product as well you know um but and but but to, to your point more broadly if it's a mass market product maybe maybe the maybe the gauntlet has been has been cast down and that's the paradigm that you need to work in if you want to compete with the likes of the Revoluts and the Monzos and stuff. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. Yeah, because, I mean, when you look at Chanel and it being a brand, it's easy to do when it's, I think, a physical good. Like if you're wearing a, a Ralph Lauren jumper or you're wearing um, Louis Vuitton shoes or whatever they are. But I guess generally with technology, how do you get that brand buy-in from a customer unless you're clever like the revolutes and then 26 of the world and you launch a fancy metal card and you give it to customers mm -hmm. because then it's it's something physical for them to show off right and i guess it's how do you create that brand exclusivity which is something which is going to be predominantly digital moving forward yeah it's funny you bring up the metal cards because uh in the states they're all they're predominantly all metal now um and and uh, the fomo i had when i was out with a with a bunch of my american friends that were visiting a few months ago and we were out, you know, we were about to pay the bill. And then there was this lovely satisfaction, you know, there's five credit cards that were very satisfyingly went clunk on the tabletop. And I was like, what is that? Oh, I've never seen one. It was extraordinary. And I was like, wow, that's fancy. I want one of those. No reason. It still paid for the dinner in the same way that my flimsy plastic card did. But it was, there was, you know, it's interesting, those little, those little uh, quirks you have where you're like, well, oh, that's kind of cool um uh, but um but yeah but then to your question uh, once everyone has got metal cards you're back you're you're back down at the bottom right and that's that i guess that's that continuing wheel of uh of innovation and commoditization how do you how do you continue to break free from that and 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 provide services that are differentiated that you can monetize for a margin that's more than the next guy yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when I then went to the went to Dubai a, a year or two ago and meeting fintechs and founders out there, you know, some were talking about this is a twenty four karat gold 
pure yeah. card and listen yeah. to it like bang on the table and it was like the metal card times three right but like again that's <laughs> like focusing on the super niche super wealthy who can really afford that who would be too scared to kind of i don't think i would take that out with me on a night out like i'd 100 percent lose it and just think like that's so much money and so much wastage by doing that I- I think, you know, something that just cropped into my head is that um, we're talking about monetization from the perspective of founders and businesses and things like that. And obviously wanting to um, uh, monetize our propositions um, in an efficient way, you know, you know, with with good margins. If you look at it from the other side of the coin, the commoditization is a fantastic thing if you're a consumer. Um in terms of you're getting these products and services for rock bottom prices, and that that then encourages the expansion of those services to to maybe segments that it wasn't available to. Um, you know, you see that in in as a continuous evolution in in our world in cross border payments, in terms of the cost of cross border payments continually coming down. You know, that is just a one way street. Um, is it an element of commoditization? Yeah, absolutely. But is it also a mechanism that gets uh, you know remittance and moving money and seamless transfers and instant transfers across borders into more people's hands? Has got to be a good thing um, for the economies of these places, for the experience of these customers. So um, whilst the margins might might not be what they were potentially, I you know I have to dig into the details. The the um, uh, the social benefit and um, providing these services to a broader range of people has got to be a good thing as well. Yeah, I guess as then the margins come down, you have to look at it will be a low margin, high volume business. And then it goes back to the point of, well, maybe then we look at backing every horse, the, the 300 million company, along with the $10 billion company, because our margins dictate that we need to kind of onboard more and more clients to kind mm-hmm. of rem- kind of keep growing as companies. So I think it's all kind of funneling in that direction to some source, some sort of path, I guess. It, it is hard. Um, putting my, putting my, uh, you know, my founder's hat on. And I think that is the, uh, going back to the, the initiative that, that we're, you know, pleasure of, uh, of ours to support you on in terms of this sort of, uh, ecosystem bringing people together this accelerator incubator because um, these are these questions that these founders have right how i could do this but i could also do this and then if i go down this path it means that i'm i'm saying no to the to the uh, to the other possible paths and so i need to own that i need to have confidence in that and i think that comes from uh, you know creating an environment where that discourse uh is is free and open and also you've had people that, um, and I know you're, you're doing a great job of bringing this community together, but you've had people that have a few of these scars that can actually say, well, you know what, I, you know, you've, have, you, have you seen it work in this way? And have you seen this work over here? And you should, you know, you should talk to, um, you should talk to these people over here because they've had a, you know, it's a different industry, but they've had a similar experience. That I think is, um, is, uh, is really beneficial um, because there's no right answer. Uh, and there's there's no way you will know as a founder whether you've made the right choices because you don't know where you're going um, in the broadest in the broadest possible sense. You have a you have a, a range of, of options in front of you. Um, so I think uh, those community uh, those community um, um, uh, sort of sessions and uh, an ability to share is uh, is, is going to go a long way to 
helping them sleep better at night. I hope so. And um, you touched upon at the beginning of that, putting my founder's hat on again. Uh, for, for the last question for today, if you were to become a founder again, we could say, uh, what would your business do? Uh, I, I don't, I don't know if I don't know if I have the stomach to be a founder. If I'm, if I'm going to be absolutely, absolutely honest, I, uh, I think I really take my hat off um, to um, to people out there that, despite all the statistics that say otherwise, can get out of bed and go, "My idea is awesome, and I'm going to make it work." And I'm gonna and I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna grow this thing from nothing to something. Um, I I really do, and I love being in the role that I'm in because I feel like I'm kind of close to that, and I can help that in a way that, in my own little way, because I know that in those being in those shoes, I just I can't I can't hack it. Um, it takes a real special person and a special mindset. Um, to be able to blend a whole host of um, sort of uh, good traits together, so uh, so no, I don't think I don't think you'll never say never, of course, but uh, but it's definitely not on the not on the to do list anytime soon. Okay, well, it might not be on the to do list, but there are plenty of founders, hopefully, I say hopefully, listening to this call uh, or this podcast, I should say, who are ready to go, but just searching for that idea. And you're a smart guy and, and you've been around the industry long enough. What is one idea you've had that you haven't seen come to life that you would love to see come to life? <laughs> you put me on the spot here. Um, I don't know. I'm I'll, a, I'll give you one of mine. Right? That I'm, a civil, I'm a civil engineer. I, I exist on a, low, on a low frequency. I'm not, My creativity side is, uh, is, probably, is probably lacking, but I'd love to hear yours. Well, my idea years ago was, and it, it all stemmed from the fact that my mum said um, she didn't like going to fill up the car with petrol because she was always a bit nervous about going to the petrol station, even if, like, say, late at night or anything dark. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the UK, it's pretty much late in winter from, like, 3, 4 p.m. So I'd always, like, when I was with them, living with my parents, if I ever tried to use the car, it's always empty because my mum just would never go and fill, it, fill up the petrol tank. So I always thought, like, a really good uh, startup idea was a service where people would come and fill up petrol in your cars at home. So like an on-demand mm. petrol delivery. And especially for women or single parents where they struggle to find that time, you know, 20 minutes to go fill up petrol, having it on demand at a slight premium, obviously, could have been a, could have been a good solution to that. But now with the I move think... towards electric, it's probably a never. No, I think it's a perfect, I think it's absolutely the perfect time to do it. Um, because yeah, the, the drive to electric will mean that all the gas stations will start to close up. And once the gas stations become uh, more difficult to access, you're going to have that problem, not just with, uh, in terms of a, uh, a propensity not to want to fill up when it's dark, it's going to be a necessity because you're going to have all these old, uh, old petrol cars that can't find a gas station. I, it's the time to do it. It's the time to do it. Yeah. Get onto it. Right. If there's any VC out there willing to fund this idea. <laughs> Or if there's a founder who can who can go and make this dream come true, just in the footnotes of your biography on yourself or billions, just mention me. Just mention, just a quick mention yeah, yeah, to Amar. Inspired by Amar Gogo. Hey, it's been a great, uh, great conversation. Thank you for having me along. Thank you for joining. It's been an absolute pleasure.
Wow, what a story. We really hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next amazing episode. I'm sure you've heard about Integrated Finance's exciting FinTech Foundation Incubator, where new FinTech founders can come and get exclusive access to a core banking technology stack, business mentors, and it's backed by some of the leading FinTech partners and investors, such as MasterCard, Currency Cloud, Comply Advantage, and many more. If you have an idea to shake up how financial services are done today, find out more about how to join us at incubator.integrated.finance. Take care.